This Creative Minds conversation with artist Eric Fischel was recorded at the San Jose Museum of Art on October 25, 2012, at the opening of the exhibition Dive Deep, Eric Fischel and the Process of Painting. Joining Mr. Fischel on the panel were Jody Throckmorton, Associate Curator at the San Jose Museum of Art and Co-Curator of the exhibition, and Dr. Lynn Orr, Curator in Charge of European Paintings at the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco. Thank you all very much for coming, and I, I hope that um, if you haven't had a chance to go through the exhibition, you will immediately after the panel. Um, I actually want to jump right in, and since we've been talking about paintings and our backgrounds a little bit, um, your love of painting came about in sort of a very different way. You were not trained as a figurative painter, so to speak. Would you talk a little bit about your background? Um. I suppose. I, uh, it all started in a log cabin. And yes, of course. Right. The, um, uh, I, I didn't grow up wanting to be an artist. Um, I wanted to be other things, guy things, uh, you know, athlete, uh, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, I, um, I ended up... Um, going to college to study business and, and then psychology. Uh, flunked out my first year. Uh, went off to San Francisco, summer of love. Had some incredible experiences with that. And, uh, and ended up back in Phoenix in a, a somewhat disheveled state, both physically and mentally. And, um, because I'd already flunked out of college once, I, I thought I maybe should go back to school and try to learn something. And, uh, and so I thought I'd go to Phoenix Junior College and I'd take art classes, because if you're bad, you get a C. <laughs> right? Nobody flunks art. So I did. I thought it was a good way to meet girls, and, and it was. And I met my first wife there. And uh, anyway, uh, at some point, I ended up going to CalArts. Now, this is uh, the late 60s. Uh, CalArts opened its doors in 1970. CalArts was uh, uh, f based on uh, this idea that, uh, you know, uh, you, 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 didn't, you wanted to break free of the past, so you didn't teach the past. You didn't teach anything that was connected to the past. Uh, they certainly weren't going to teach you, you know, anatomy, figure drawing, uh, those kind of traditional forms because they would lock you into the past. Uh, if you wanted to reproduce images, there were mechanical ways of doing it, and so you would do it, use those mechanical ways to do it. The, the hand was n no longer relevant to the experience of a work of art. Uh, I think it was the same month that, I, that the doors opened at CalArts. Maybe it was uh, the month before Art in America announced on the cover of its magazine that painting was dead. So that kind of turned those of us who love to paint into necrophiliacs. <laughs> well, there were you know, some issues around that. But uh, the CalArts felt that if you had to paint... You should at least paint abstract paintings because that was a little bit more modern than figuration. So I was, I was trained as an abstract painter.
painter. And um, there, there was a point I was telling Jody a story about how at one point the students kind of rebelled and, and said, you know, we want to learn to paint from a model. And our teacher got very upset and reluctantly agreed to hire a model and said, you know, come in tomorrow, the model will be there from nine in the morning till five and you can draw or do whatever you want. I got to the studio around 11. I walk in and half the ceiling had fallen down. All of the students were naked and had paint smeared all over them. The model was sitting over in the corner smoking a cigarette. <laughs> I thought I'd arrived a little too late to get going on this, so <laughs> I turned around and left. But that was as close to figure drawing as... So, yeah. And this is obviously, Lynn, you can probably... This is very similar to how many of the traditional painters trained, you know, in terms of working from a model, obviously. Well, Eric and I have something in common, because I failed my first art history exam. There you go. So we started... We knew, however, Sorry. I knew I was going to love art, though, and it's um, what I loved is the physical qualities of art, and that's what I think painting is all about. And um, so I'm so glad to be here and to be part of this and to um, add a, a historical perspective to our conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things, since we have the Bonard image up, I know that Susan really beautifully talked about this a little bit, and I wondered if you wanted to respond to any of this since we have the image up and we're able to see yeah, it. Yeah, as, as long as we're speaking about uh, the physicality yeah. of, of painting, uh, this is something that uh, none of you can see because you're looking at a reproduction of a painting, and in a reproduction, it, it reduces surface to, uh, to the sameness. And so what you get is an image. Um, when I s saw this painting in person, I was really struck by uh, something that Bonnard did that, uh, that I thought was incredibly brilliant. He, first of all, takes a genre scene, uh, you know, circus horses, the circus, those kind of... Uh, sort of painting motifs had been around for a long time. So he, he takes, a, to some extent, a hackneyed uh, genre image. And, uh, and then he paints it in this way where, it, were you to see the painting in the flesh, there's very little painting actually on the horse itself. There's the thinnest sort of stain of yellow. The, the white is actually the prime canvas. The, the blacks uh, are, are the only sort of uh, concentration of paint, the black eyes. All around the painting, the paint is really thick. So he's essentially kind of carved the horse out of this surface. And the, the combination of the whiteness of the horse, the blackness of the eyes, that, that gives it this kind of skull-like you know, resonance that begins you sort of moving in the direction of a, of a you know, meditation on mortality is confirmed by the reversal of materiality, that the, the thing that's in the front of the painting 
is actually the background of the painting, and, and the thing that's the background becomes the foreground based on the density of the paint. And so he's, he's turned the horse into a, 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 a phantom. And it's a kind of in, interpretation that you could only get by actually physically being present with the work. Because from, from this point of view, it's, as I say, everything's undifferentiated, and so it becomes an image of a horse that you, know, you can maybe or maybe not think about these things that I'm talking about. Um, I'm glad you bring out at the beginning of our conversation the importance of standing in front of a work of art itself and experiencing its surfaces. Um, I had mentioned to um, Jody and Eric that at our museum in San Francisco, we just ran some focus groups about um, who would want to come to an exhibition of Vermeer's Girl with the Pearl Earring. And the youngest selection of people in this focus group said, we don't need to come to the museum to see it. We know this image, it's so, you know, it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere. And so um, when you go out and look at the paintings here, that's when you really understand, you know, the creativity and um, the physical qualities of art that really give you a, a sensual pleasure to stand in front of, regardless of what the subject matter is. Right, and this is skipping ahead a little bit, but I see the same thing. You're using Photoshop now a lot, and you'll see in the show that we have a lot of Eric's Photoshop collages and some of his original photographs for his paintings. Um, to me, putting those next to each other, the Photoshop collages with the paintings, really made that apparent, mm -hmm. that there's life that you bring to the painting versus the collage. Yeah, the, um, I, I mean, I, I actually lo I love photography. Um, as a standalone thing, I love photography. I'm, I'm not a photographer myself. I'm, I'm a snapshotter. And, uh, um, but I love photography. I have a lot of friends who are great photo photographers. Um, there's a, some very fundamental differences between painting and photography. Um, they're subtle to some extent, uh, but, but profound in terms of the ultimate experience of the two things. Um, you know, photography is something that you know, captures a moment, and the greatest photographers are the ones that have this instant connection between their trigger finger and their eye, and that they can see simultaneously as they click everything that's in that photograph that has a kind of dynamism, a kind of meaning within a, within a frame. It's, a, it's an incredibly uh, uh, profound skill that they have. Um, but it captures something that, uh, that's a, you know, that, that sort of takes, takes something from uh, life and, and pulls it forward for observation uh, as a moment, as a coincidence, as a phenomena, as a something, but it you know, pulls it forward. Uh, painting is something that builds to that similar moment, uh, that frozen sense of you know, the moment, but it builds, and it builds through its construction. It's, it's how the, the paint is put on, it's how the paint is taken off, smeared around, the color choices, the scale of the object, all those things are, are choices that when you look at a painting, 
that's where you enter it. That's how you enter it. That you participate in the in the building to the moment that you, as a viewer, have come on fresh to, right? Um, and and that's a different relationship of an artist to an audience. It's it's uh, it's much more intimate, in a way. It's a, it's kind of a hand holding thing. You're 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 as a painter inviting through touch an audience to join you in in that and so it's it's got an incredible sort of intimacy to it um so what i find i'm first of all i'm i'm a uh, i found early on that i'm a storyteller and uh, uh so i use photographs i use images it starts with people and it starts with people doing things sometimes doing things they shouldn't do but it starts with them, and, it, and, and I, I find their body language compelling, and I cut them out, and I try to contextualize the feelings that I was, uh, that it were in, evoked in me looking at this body language. Try to find another context for a way of explaining it to myself. So I, I came very late to... Uh, Photoshop. I didn't come late, but I came reluctantly to Photoshop. Uh, and, and the reason is, is that I was educated by second-generation abstract expressionists who, like the first generation of abstract expressionists, really believed that discovery and execution had to happen simultaneously on the canvas. That that was the existential battle that was taking place, and that that you had to like using just your wits and your your you know ability to to sort of harness this energy and to define it, you you could capture an existential moment through the language, the pure language of paint. I love that idea, you know. That's like that like makes painting heroic. Right? We're, we're all entering this existential void, struggling with our wits and our skill and our intellect and whatever to come up with, you know, that this blob of green over here actually has to be there, even though you don't know what the hell it is kind of experience. So I thought with Photoshop, I would be separating discovery from execution. And I thought it would kill the painting. And so it took me a long time to come to that place where, where I would try it. And what I found was, in fact, that when I was doing my discovery in the Photoshop, running these figures, these scenes, through all kinds of permutations till I found something that really resonated with me, and then printed it out, when I went to my canvas to paint it, it freed my painting up to be paint. And, and so my, my, I, I was, you know, got looser, I got more uh, uh, dynamic in a lot of ways that uh, I wasn't able to do before because I was so uptight about losing whatever it is I was trying to have. So. Well, the way you um, seem now to go through the creative process is a much more traditional way where, you know, artists of the traditional um, schools do sketches and you know, drawn sketches, painted sketches. And so how do you feel about um, putting together an exhibition that shows your working process? Is that scary? 
Uh, you mean scary in terms of demystifying my... Right, and it, it would be like a, an author um, putting a, yeah, a rough the, draft out. The wizard behind the curtain yes. type thing. <laughs> the, uh, I, I actually uh, think that the entire process of creativity is of interest at some different levels in, di- in different ways. And and so it's more like inviting an audience to come in and you know on on whatever level they choose to enter it and to kind of uh, be interested or fascinated or excited by it. So I, I'm not uh, you know I I don't think ultimately finding out how I put something together takes away from what it is I finally put together. And although I have to say I'm uh, there's a a painting of. Uh, uh, this family, uh, husband, wife, and two kids, the Price family. And next to it is like all the different collages that I did. And I was looking at it the other day when I came in. I was thinking, why did I choose to paint this instead of that? That looks pretty good. <laughs> you know, or is everyone going to look at this going, why the hell did he, you know, what? this one's just as good as that one, what, you know. Well, so who knows? <laughs> and that, that was one of the things that we talked about when we, when we were first talking about the show a little bit is that you were very open. You said, well, how could we show that I fail or that I say no? Like, can we put X's through things in the show? So I don't uh-huh. know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, true, yeah. Anyway, I, I lost my train of thought with that confession. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I just wanted to bring us back a little bit more because there's a, there's a history of, of painters using photography. The famous example from the Pennsylvania Academy is um, Aikens, which is in the show. You'll see some photographs um, that Thomas Aikens Circle did in the exhibition that Eric was inspired um, to do some paintings off of. But the other person is Bonard, which, um, Lynn, we've talked a little bit about that, and I'll pull up some images that we can look at. But the way he was photographing his wife. And this was also an inspiration to you, I believe. Mm-hmm. This is an example of Bernard's, a photograph by Bernard. Well, and uh, Bernard um, and Vuillard are part of a movement called Intimism, and, and they re- the artist really introduces you into the domestic interior, into um, very, um, uh, again, intimate um, settings and subject matter. Um, but it's, it's also interesting, and I see it in your work as well, a, a kind of distancing from the personality through formal methods, um, abstraction, patterning, um, uh, telescoping, or reduction of spatial relationships. So um, you might um, address those issues. Yeah, the... Um, uh I mean, you know, first of all, there seems to be, uh, along with the fact that people keep saying painting's dead or that, that thing won't go away, the other one that doesn't go away is the crime that people perceive an artist commits when they go to f- using photographs as a basis for painting. And so, you know, it's, uh, David Hockney got into a huge amount of crap over, over his observation about you know the use of uh, of lenses and and camera obscuras and as ways of explaining how a painter only through the use of a mechanical device could have arrived at this thing <clears throat> i mean because artists you know first of all painting is a technology and it's a technology that has advanced uh 
over all the centuries and millennium that it has existed, it, it's advanced you know, with inventions of color or changes in materials or uh, substrata, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, along with that, uh, techno technological interests that artists have from the very start is, the, you know, photography. When photography uh, came along, the f photographers were, were trying to duplicate painting. And so they were doing these ridiculous uh, um, sort of uh, allegorical, epic allegorical scenes a la the Academy. But it was painters who actually saw how photography could breathe new life into a stagnating uh, historical form of painting. It was Degas who, for example, saw in the snapshot, in the accidental, the, the incidental moment, compositional opportunities. You know, who saw in a, in a uh, uh, the, the different focal lengths of a lens, compositional and, and, and emotional and psychological. Right, and the, the handheld little um, Kodak, the brownie we call it, um, was only developed at the very end of the 19th century, and that really changed the who could make photographs and, and took it out of the hands of the professional who used a tripod and a plate to the amateur. And artists like Degas and Bonnard and Vuillard really um, utilized now, I didn't, that. I didn't even know that Bonnard made photographs because you, you, know, you look at his paintings and they are so fundamentally different mm -hmm. than, than the, the photograph. Uh, um, I, so I thought he was very much involved in you know, just sort of the direct observational kind of uh, uh, painting experience. Uh, uh, I actually accepted him the way he's always been presented to me, which is he's this, you know, uh, bourgeois painter of domesticity uh, with a, with a uh, sense of light, uh, color as light, and, you know, this, this kind of thing. And, uh, and then I saw, I happened on a, sh a show of photographs at the Musée d'Orsay, these black and white photographs like this. And I was, like, stunned because I hadn't seen underneath all of that sort of impressionistic color and that, that uh, luscious surface and that whatever. I hadn't seen, and this isn't the... I pulled up the... Sorry, I changed okay. on you. <laughs> uh, I, what I hadn't seen was that he actually was... I, I'm not going to say a misanthrope, but he had an edge to how he viewed humans. And uh, there's a lot of the, his photographs are his nephews and, and uh, his relations playing in the backyard. And you look at these photographs and they are like mean. You know, he's like, he is not thrilled by children and stuff like that. And, and, but it was, the, it was the stripping away of the color that made me think, oh, I should go back and look at Bonnard and see if there's a relationship between these, this vision, photographically vision, and, and his paintings. And of course, sure enough, I did. Uh, all of a sudden, I could see the, the uh, more specifically, the, the charged moment of the, the figure and the, uh, you know, the, the 
a kind of expressionism, psychological expressionism that I hadn't attributed to his work at all. And uh, so I began to look much harder at it. Um, this is a, uh, I, can I talk about this painting uh, sure, for a please. second? Sure, please, please go ahead. This, this is another one of those paintings you gotta stand in front of. And it's, it's really quite a, uh, a puzzle. Uh, there's a, I was looking at it, and you can't see it in the slide, but in all of this sort of, you know, painting, da-da-da, marking, making a certain way, up in the right or the left-hand upper corner, there's like this very small cluster of red and green dots. And just like, you know, like you took a little, you know, three-hair brush, and you just kind of went do 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 and uh, I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, what the hell is he doing? What, you know, this, he, he, I'm squinting. I'm trying to see, is that like a hinge on a door? Or, or what is that thing that he just did this thing? And, I, and it, it wasn't anything. It was just this moment where he just sort of put these dots in. And I'm saying, what? That doesn't make any sense to me. But it started me moving across the surface in a much more intimate way as I began to try to answer that question to myself. And I noticed that, you know, you get to these French windows and each, he's painting this lace curtain on these French windows and each frame, he's painting it differently. So it's like, Sometimes he's curling his brushwork this way. Sometimes he's blabbing it that way. Some, each one is different. And, it, and you start going across, and it, you st begin to see that, in fact, every area he's handling totally differently, which is a staggering kind of concept. And, then I, and I started to think about how it's, it's about disruptive rhythms. He's like, he's like setting up a way of expressing something that is, is, is where something gets started and then it stops. Something else start, begins and then it stops. And it goes on like that. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at this woman and I'm looking at this woman, I'm looking at this woman as a man, I'm looking at this woman as an object of desire. I'm looking at this woman and I'm thinking about relationships and stuff. And then it was like, oh, I get it. You know, this, this is all about disrupted. Everything about this relationship that he has to this woman is about starting and stopping, about redoing, about, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that he somehow had invested into the experience of this paint language exactly how to think about his relationship to this woman. So, You know, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the subjects that you choose to paint, which I think, and I don't know, Lynn, you may disagree with me, but have long traditions throughout painting, whether that be leisure, domesticity, um, even you mentioned the word bourgeois people, which we talked about a little bit today that, you know, you've some, come under some attack for that lately, and I don't know if you would feel comfortable talking about that, because I see it as part of a long tradition of what's been happening in painting, and portraiture especially. What, what, is there a question I don't know. There, I'm or? sorry. I just, I just was wondering if, if you wanted to answer that, if you see your work along that trajectory or in a different way. 
Yeah, well, uh, Lynn and I were uh, talking earlier about, um, uh, and, and actually somebody else brought it up as well, about uh, this uh, figure, this photograph that I took of this woman from her, seen from her back laying down and brought up uh, Velazquez's uh, Rockaby Venus or, or uh, somebody else brought up uh, the Odalisk, Ang's Odalisk and stuff. And, uh, and so there was a thing of like, you know, was I thinking about these while I was painting the paintings of this woman that I had photographed? And I was saying that my, my relationship to art history is, is not so much a, like directly lifting from it, although I have in a couple of cases done that, but it's not so much about oh, I want to paint a contemporary version of the Rockaby Venus. What it is, is I had an experience with this woman that I saw on the beach that, whose picture I took that, that so compelled me that I made a painting and then another painting, drawings, and I did all kinds of things around this one woman in this one pose that I discovered her in on the beach in southern France. And then, of course, stepping away from that, see the linkage to that long history of, you know, that, that not only is it uh, the, uh, you know, the Rockaby Venus or Ang, but it's, it's also the hermaphrodite, uh, the, the, the Greek hermaphrodite with the same similar kind of pose. And it's just something that is uh, deep, deep, not, not as a motif, but as an archetype. And that's the, that's the thing that I keep trying to find in my work, is not the motif, but the archetype. Because it, that's the thing that you're, you know, art when it's great is revitalizing something that we know about that is very important to us on many, many levels and, and is precisely the, the archetypal. Right, and it's these forms or motifs or gestures that really speak of universals and speak across the centuries mm -hmm. um, to us. Um, mm -hmm. And, I mean, th that we are there universals today in painting? Are there universal things that we all can pick up on? Uh, well, I, I, uh, I, I think obviously there are, but uh, what are they? Yeah is the the thing i i think I'll, I'll give you an example of a a universal narrative that is at play today okay uh it's the liberation narrative and it's uh it's a narrative that's been in in uh, abundance uh certainly since uh the the 80s, the 70s and, and 80s uh, in art where it, it, it expresses itself uh, for liberation. Uh, f feminist liberation was one uh, gripping liberation narrative. Uh, you know, sexual identity, another gripping liberation narrative. Uh, you know, uh, not, uh, you know, racial liberation, et cetera, et cetera. These were all the narratives that have been, you know, have been part of the art world for, 
you know, a very focused part of the art world for the last 40 years. Um, I, I was a part of, my liberation narrative came with, you know, painting the figure, which seems kind of stupid, but that became a liberation narrative, you know, or, you know, proving that painting wasn't dead and that figuration wasn't dead, but that becomes a liberation narrative, I don't know. Now, now you see it, it spreads out, and now, you know, I remember when the German artists, emer you know, became part of our consciousness in, in America, because this was a, a post-war generation of Germans whose parents were Nazis, and, and they were trying to find what is it to be German now, you know, where, where's the, the genetic thing, where's the, the cultural thing, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we who participated in, in the, the war had a complete fascination with them trying to figure out exactly what that meant, who, who they are, et cetera, et cetera. That's a liberation narrative. And then it spread, and it, you know, it's in Africa, it's in India, it's in, it's in China, you know, it was in Japan, et cetera. We're looking around the world for Brazil, you know, anywhere to, to show us what, it, what is it like to be who you are coming out of certain historical uh, experiences. Uh, you know, obviously the, the Chinese emerging out of uh, a Mao, et cetera. That's, that's the most interesting. So Ai Weiwei becomes the best, you know, kind of heroic example of, of the liberation narrative. So th that's a universal. Um, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, yeah, you got sure. me stumped on that yeah, one. It's like, whatever. <laughs> I was thinking more of this is a symbol for that, but no, that's great. <laughs> okay. One thing I want to come back to, though, to bring us back up just a little bit, is your sculpture. Because one of the things that you have similar with sort of academic training is the way you went back. You'll see there's a middle section to the show that sort of shows this you went back to sculpture and describe a different feeling that you had working with sculpture than paint, than painting. Mm -hmm. And that had a profound effect on, on the rest of your, on, the, on your work. Yeah, uh, well, for me, sculpture is, you know, modeling. It's, it's not construction or it's not carving, it's modeling. And that's the, the way I work with it. And, and I discovered when I started to work first with clay and then... Uh, and then went to wax. The uh, you know that there the the way the hand and the material w work accesses a different part of the creative mind, and uh, it does so because the the hand has memories that the mind can't access visually. It has to feel. It has to be unlocked through the feeling of something that then the eye looks to, to verify, but the, but the hand leads the way. In, in painting, your eye leads your hand, right? It, the eye sees something, the hand tries to capture it. In sculpture, it's, the hand tends to lead the way, and the eye checks it out to see if that's good, right, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I like it on that level alone, just that it's a, a, it connects to a different part of the memory base, which is the, the nature of uh, art anyway. But. 
And as curators, um, Jody and I were talking about the fact when you do an installation, it's wonderful to have three-dimensional objects, um, particularly when in a painting and drawing show, everything is essentially two-dimensional. Mm -hmm. Because not only is it a different method to create um, a sculpture, but it's a totally different viewing experience. So it's really wonderful for our visitors to have themselves challenged to look at the art in a different way and to become, you know, you have to move around a sculpture to experience, mm -hmm. so. Of course, the irony of sculpture in museums is you can't touch them, so. <laughs> <laughs> For insurance purposes. But you can get great shadows, though, right? That's, that's one of the things, because yes. you went from the making the clay sculptures into arranging them in your studio in different scenarios and photographing them to look at the light. Yeah. And, oh, go ahead. And I was just going to say that um, there are a number of really beautifully orchestrated um, installation moments um, in Jody's um, design. And it's scenes and sequences, is that the wall, mm -hmm. where there are um, objects of different size, different color, different media, all um, arranged together in a very um, aesthetically pleasing and, and I think, um, uh, evocative way. So I congratulate you on, oh, thank you. on thank your you. design aesthetic. Yes. And, and, and that's the hope. I mean, I think that's one of the beautiful things in the show is that um, the lady in the exhibition that looks like the Rokeby Venus a little bit is, um, I've been referring to her as the Sphinx Lady, which I think is an okay nickname. Yeah. And um, she pops up from... I mean, maybe we could talk about your mild obsession. May I call it an obsession with her a bit? Just because she pops up at the beginning of the exhibition and then you see her again at the end, too. Mm. So, I mean, have you let go of her? <laughs> <laughs> the, the wound is still open. Oh, okay. <laughs> no. I wanted to ask you, has anybody in one of your photographs ah. ever recognized themselves in one of that your paintings? Um, n not uh, not in photographs where I'm, I'm, you know, being very candid and, uh -huh. and uh, surreptitious and just snapping people in public. I I lived in fear for a while of that, and then I started doing portraits in which the people who I was doing portraits of didn't recognize themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so I figure I'm on uh, I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever um, done a portrait of any political figures? No. No, I'd, I'd like to. Well, you know, I, one of my uh, uh, favorite uh, portraits to think about, not necessarily my favorite painting, but, my, but to some extent it is a compelling one, and I, I actually don't know the name of the person it painted, but... It was painted by Velazquez, and it's a portrait of a man who was an Inquisition judge, oh, yes. right? Boston. He's also the man who was the first to break with the Inquisition and, and lead them out of the Inquisition, right? So here was a man who did both things, right? And you're looking at this painting of this person, and what, what you see is, you, you, it's you know, just an isolated figure, so it's not like you're seeing 
you know, the rack behind him on one hand and the hand of justice on the other to, to sort of get into the duality of this life. What you're looking at is a portrait of a man who's full of thought. And you're, you, you don't know what he's thinking about, but you know that this is a, a person who is sensitive and regarding and thoughtful and stuff. And it just, it, it's when you attach it to the complexity of the life that he had, which you know, comes from information outside the canvas, does it make that experience, uh, the, the perception of Velazquez painting this person even more acute? Because it, it, you sense the, the complexity without knowing why. And, and I find that really compelling. Mm -hmm. so. Well, with that beautiful description, I want to open it up to make sure we have time for some questions from the audience. Yes. Let, let me, do you mind if I repeat it just so that everybody can hear it? Um, one, of, one of Eric's most notorious paintings is called Bad Boy, and um, he was wanting Eric to talk a little bit more about the painting, I think. I might uh, be able to pull it up, actually. Okay, and get arrested. <laughs> uh, I will say, and, and this is the honest to God truth, that that's sleep boy. There you go. Uh, when I started this painting, all I knew was that I wanted to paint a bowl of fruit. <laughs> <laughs> and you think we believe that? <laughs> yeah. I you you have to you have to actually believe me on that. I I uh, that. You know, this was actually before Photoshop and stuff like that. This was still when I was approaching the blank canvas and, you know, with just some instinct and uh, a few thoughts and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to paint a bowl of fruit. And so I did. And then I thought, well, of course, it has to be on something. So I put a table in there. And then I was thumbing through a, a magazine and I saw these uh, bamboo curtains and I thought, oh, cool. That'd be fun to paint. So I put the bamboo curtains in, you know, thinking about this striped light coming through and stuff. And I paint, paint those in and I paint some stripes back on the fruit that I'd painted. And, and I put this wash of green in, the, in the, there. And I, all of a sudden I started thinking about adobe houses in, in Phoenix that are this, these kind of bungalow-type houses that are thick-walled, and the, the interior is sort of always cool, even though it's like 150 degrees outside. And, and so I started thinking about siestas. And I thought, oh, okay, so it's a bedroom. And so I put the bedroom in there. And I thought, you know, it's like siesta time, and I think post-coital. That would be good, you know. So I, I painted uh, this woman in a different position than you see her there, and I painted this man, you know, having sort of rolled off and, and was sleeping or something. But one of the things I learned about uh, me in painting is that 
if something isn't supposed to be there, I can't make it be there. And I couldn't get the guy in there. I, I just couldn't paint him in a way that made it believable and whatnot. So I took him out. And I rolled her over. And, uh, but I kept thinking that there's somebody else in this room. And so I, I put a little baby next to her head. And that didn't work. And so then I put this like five-year-old kid sitting on the edge of the bed pulling the, the blinds down. And that didn't work. And then I, you know, then I got this like 10, 11-year-old kid in the position you see him in now. And it started to really make sense to me. And then I started thinking, what's he doing? What's, what's going on here other than what's going on here? And I thought, oh, he's stealing something. And so I put him, changed the position of his arm, and I, you know, reaching behind his back, he's reaching into her purse to take something. And that was the, the painting. And, uh, you know, you think, what a strange journey that was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you described it that way because it, it, it really immediately made me think of the glass scenes in the gallery. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that same process of asking yourself questions and, yeah, in that I mean, case? What I, what I discovered, I, I mentioned it earlier, is that I'm an, a, a storyteller, a narrative painter, etc. It's, it's actually the way I think and it's the way I connect to myself. Uh, in terms of trying to understand experiences. So I, uh, when I started working with the glassine paper, which is this transparent paper that accepts oil paint beautifully, and I began doing these large-scale drawings, I, I would start with, I, I had a blank wall in my studio, and I would take a piece of paper, and I'd cut it out and put it on the wall, and I'd I'd paint a chair, or I'd paint a sofa, or I'd paint a bed, or a lamp, or a chair, you know, whatever. A bicycle. And I would sit there, and I'd look at it, and I would just start asking myself the questions. It's like, what is... Is there anyone sitting in the chair? Are they standing next to the chair? Are they walking in front of the chair? Are they walking behind the chair? Are they, you know, is there anyone else in the room? Is there a... A dog, a cat, a, you know, is there a, an object, et cetera, et cetera. And I w every time I had a thought, I would go and get another piece of paper, lay it on, paint that thing, and it would either go yes or no. And if it went no, I'd take it off and put another piece of paper there and go, oh, what's this? And, you know. and eventually I would arrive at a, a scene that made sense to me, that resonated in some way. And so that's... When I moved from doing these glassine drawings to the paintings, that was the same process that I would, would use. I would start with something and, uh, and then build out from there, letting it take me where, where it was going to go. Well, I won't make a di direct connection to the Bonar because I discovered the Bonar much later than the paintings that um, you're talking about. But what I will say is that I make a distinction between nude and naked, which is, I think, what you're speaking more specifically to. Um, you know, there's, a, there's certainly a history and art of the nude, and the, and the nude is uh, it, essentially an erotic principle. 
and it uh, it is a lot about uh, form. There's a, a high degree of abstraction to it. Um, it's line, form, things like that. Um, uh, with a, as I say, the pleasure principle in operation. Uh, naked is a psychological state, and it's and it's more about uh, exposure, and it's about uh, the relationship that one has with their sense of self, and so it's it's much more effective as a dramatic tool than uh, simply as a, a painting motif, and uh, and so that's the way I used it, uh, you know. I, I somebody tagged me with the psychosexual suburban drama, <laughs> which I haven't been able to shake. But uh, anyway, it comes out of that that sense of the the, you know, the nakedness, uh, exposure thing. And yeah. Yes. Uh, rumor has it that you spent some time as a museum security guard, which is something you have in common with. Martin Becca, who's also upstairs. No, I didn't know that. He was a, a guard at the Guggenheim for six years, and I was wondering if that helped you at all in the way that you look at or spent time in front of art. Uh, I, actually, Jody and I today were both sort of saying, you know, maybe we should retire and go back to being guards. Yeah. Because it's a, a great way to spend the day. <laughs> yeah, I was a, a guard at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago uh, for a couple of years. And uh, I loved it. And, um, it, it, you know, the, certainly the, the longer you live with works of art, the more they speak to you, the more they un, unveil themselves and, and stuff like that. So it's... So it was a great privilege to be around that. I also, as a young artist, uh, docents would, who, who knew that I was a, an artist, even though I was completely unformed as an artist at that time, I just graduated from school, uh, used to ask me questions about the art. And I would just make up stuff. <laughs> and then I'd hear them. <laughs> telling these kids or these groups. It's like, oh my God. I, I got to either do more of that and really get it. You know, anyway, yeah. yeah. But, um, yes. How do you choose when you go through a similar kind of news experiment, experience, how do you settle down into what you actually do? Hmm. Yeah, um, he was just asking in sort of the glut of images that we see every day or, or Eric sees every day as artists, how does he choose what he's going to paint or be inspired by? Well, also, he, he added that the artist has this, uh, you know, so, so when they begin something or they have a, an inflamed imagination, I would call it an inflamed imagination, you know, where they're so excited and so... You know, not only that, but they're convinced it's going to be the ultimate painting or whatever. It's going to blow everybody else away, and finally, you're going to achieve the perfection that you're looking for. You know, whatever you have these things you talk to yourself about, 
And then he was asking, yeah, so how do you sort of go from this kind of fantasy of what you're wanting to do and to actually sitting down and working methodically to, to do it? Because in, in that process, you have to weed so much out to focus, to concentrate, and, and uh, whatnot. Um, I, uh, I, I think that uh, if, if you are in a place where you're overwhelmed by the possibilities, that just the sheer number of possibilities, it's because you haven't hit what actually is meaningful for you. That when you hit the thing that's meaningful, all that other stuff drops away. And then it's just a matter of trying to develop that, the, the specificity of that thing. Uh, your, you know, your, your options become much narrower when you're actually focused on the thing that means the most to you. And, and you know, how do you find that is, the, the, you know, who knows? I, 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 you, you know it when you find it, for sure. But, uh, you know, and, and actually, artists, uh, myself included, go through periods where the, the, what you've been doing becomes a little stale. And so you begin to try to look for a way of re-stimulating yourself. And, and then all of a sudden, that feeling creeps in where it's like, it could be this, it could be that, it could do this, oh, this would be amazing. I mean, my God, if I did that, well, then. And then, you, you know, you're lost. So I, uh, I'd get off the coffee... <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I, I, uh, I actually did a, a book uh, called um, Sketchbook with Voices. I did it uh, years ago, back in the mid-80s. I, I taught for four years at an art school in Nova Scotia. Uh, and I became incredibly frustrated with it because students were making all different kinds of artwork. And then they would come to me and ask me to critique their work. And now I'm making work that's entirely different from what they're doing. And they're asking me to be, you know, sort of smart about what they're doing. And I'm thinking, why are you asking me when you're doing these minimalist paintings? Why don't you ask Robert Ryman? You know, when you're sitting there crumbling little pieces of paper and sticking them on the wall, why don't you ask Richard Tuttle? You know, why ask me? I don't have any idea what to tell you kind of thing. So, so I thought, I'll ask the artists. I'll just go and ask these artists, like... Give me a problem that you would give to uh, an art student. And uh, I found uh, one thing I found right away was that most of these artists said, I don't, I don't teach, I don't know what to tell artists, you know, I, I, da 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 da. So that didn't work. So I, I instead started talk, getting to them to talk to me about their process. And out of their speaking about their process, I heard the problems that they would give to somebody else because they were the problems they were giving to themselves. And, uh, but the, the thing that it centered around often was how do they get out of a jam? Like, w what do they do when they're stuck? 
right? And I'll give you an example because artists are very clever about how to deal with this problem. Richard Archwager uh, was telling me about how he was working on a painting and he was beating it to death. It was like he was so overworking it and, and obsessing about it and stuff. And he thought in order to save it, what he would do was he would go into his living room on the other side of the wall and he'd watch TV. And he would only paint during commercials. <laughs> he said it took him most of the day. But by the end of the day, he kind of had gotten past that, that problem, right? So. Well, with that in, perfect about the creative process, actually. Thank you. Um, that's going to be the conclusion of our panel discussion, but thank you all for coming. That was artist Eric Fischel in conversation with the San Jose Museum of Arts, Jody Throckmorton, and Dr. Lynn Orr of the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco. The exhibition, Dive Deep, Eric Fischel and the Process of Painting, opened at the San Jose Museum of Art on October 27, 2012, and will remain on view through May 13, 2013. The exhibition was organized by the San Jose Museum of Art and the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, Philadelphia. Dive Deep is sponsored by the Richard A. Karp Charitable Foundation, the Walter and Carla Goldschmidt Foundation, Rita and Kent Norton, the Clinton Hill Allen Tran Foundation, Christie's, and Dr. W. Donald Head. For more information, visit www.sanjosemuseumofart.org.